This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Today's guest is Kimberly Ann Coles, who is professor of English at the University of Maryland. Her first book, Religion, Reform, and Women's Writing in Early Modern England, was published with Cambridge University Press in 2008. Her work has been supported by the John Klug Center, the Warburg Institute, and the Folger Shakespeare Library. Today we are discussing bad humor, race, and religious essentialism in early modern England, which has recently been released by the University of Pennsylvania Press. As the introduction states, quote, while there is nothing inevitable about how material bodies are understood in political space, the texts surveyed in this book reveal how bodies are written to accommodate political and economic interests. This is certainly not the only time that religion is racialized in Europe, but it is the episode in English history when Christianity becomes black and white. I am excited to welcome Kim to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's start by outlining the overall argument of bad humor. One of the lines you trace in this book is the entanglements of body and soul in early modern race thinking. Another line is the embeddedness of religion in the language of corporate difference, which is itself embedded in the language of humoral science. Yeah, the um, thrust of the book is the particular pressures of English colonial endeavor in the late 16th, early 17th century that drive um, a change in how the connection between body and soul is understood and the extent to which it's calcified, I think is, is the best word for it. It's not unique. I mean, th- there's a long history, Geraldine Hang, Lindsay Kaplan, um, a, a number of a number of medievalists, Cord Whitaker, a number of medievalists have exfoliated a very long history um, that articulates a relationship between black melancholy and wrong, wrong religion that um, that marks religious others with the humor of black melancholy. The difference in the early modern period is the impossibility of conversion for certain religious others. What's unique in this period and what drive the force that drives this is that English colonial violence is largely directed against fellow Christians. And that is a, a change. Historically, that is not the case. Religious others meant religious and cultural others, not those who are of a different Christian sect or those who are converts. 
So that colonial violence becomes problematic when the people against whom it's directed are recognized as fellow Christians. And this unique historical moment when the targets of colonial activity are Irish Catholic, Spanish Catholic, converted Africans, it forces a um, reorientation of this connection between black melancholy and wrong religion that marks fellow Christians as unable to convert. And of course, this, this flies in the face of Christian doctrine, but it calcifies, it, it makes a physiological reality um, that their religion is pagan, is wrong, is outside of Christianity, and is physiologically marked within them by a humoral imbalance. This is the narrative, you know, this is the, the story. So it's the unique convergence of this long-standing theory of bad humors with a historically contingent episode of colonial activity, whether it's clearing Ireland um, in order to plant Englishmen there or trying to establish a labor pool in perpetuity that initiates a physiological fact of paganism that's marked by black melancholy and that is prompt or rather prompts this convergence of religion and what passed for science in the period. You work mostly with cultural documents like poetry, but but I think one of the signal moments in the book is this 1667 Virginia statute that you discuss a little bit in which this cultural idea gets enshrined in law. Could you tell us a little bit about that statute? So the whole book tends toward... Um, the final analysis of early English slave practices and how ideas of religion become, or rather the evolution of the idea that religion is heritable and how it then gets, uh, how it becomes an idea of such currency that it can be uh, written into early English slave codes. And so notions, though the chapter five exfoliates how um, English labor practices evolve over time. And you initially have a labor pool that, that doesn't rely on African labor. Um, Jennifer Morgan writes about this um, 
quite a lot that English settlers rarely turned first to Africa to fulfill their their labor needs. Um, but what becomes clear in Cromwell's practices um, is the idea that religion is um, is an inherited trait and that the Irish are not regarded as fellow Christians. And where this becomes clear is in practices like um, Morgan talks about 2,000 women um, from Ireland being sent to Jamaica um, for the, um, as, as part of a rape program. And Cromwell writes, not Oliver, his son, Richard, writes about how um, the forcing of sex upon them uh, might be somehow distasteful, but it will benefit um, the English um, public. He says, being so much for their own good and likely to be of great advantage to the public. He's writing this to John Thurlow, the Secretary of State during the Protectorate. Um, And actually it wasn't Richard, it's Henry, uh, Henry Cromwell. But this fantasy that he imagines uh, that um, Irish women can produce Christian children through a rape program where they service English soldiers imagines Christianity as something heritable and that they will somehow be reformed in their progeny through the, um, through the, uh, through their rape by, by Christian Englishmen. Um, he has a similar fantasy of sending, um, Irish children to the West Indies that um, over time, um, he says, it, it may be a means to make them Englishmen, I mean, rather Christians. So there's some notion of um, conversion in humoral terms as it relates to the Irish. There's a, a fantasy, there's a racial fantasy um, that imagines Irish bodies becoming English, but the crucial feature of this fantasy is that they might. And as distasteful as it is to talk about rape programs, this is is where um, partis sequitur ventrum, I argue, um, comes from. Because if obviously Christian, a, a, the introduction of what can be imagined at this time as Christian blood reforms the body of the progeny. The potential for um, it due to the rape programs of um, on plantations, the rape programs related to African women, um, you would have the same outcome where their progeny could become Christian. 
And so what gets written into law is their permanent paganism, their inherited heathenism. And that's what gets written into um, Virginia statutes in 1662, Maryland statutes in 1664, and the statutes that proceed from that moment, the guarantee that the progeny of um, Black women will remain in perpetual servitude because of the guarantee that the progeny of Black women will be permanently pagan and cannot, through baptism or conversion, become something else. Throughout the book, I could see clearly this crisis among these early modern writers that you discuss. On the one hand, they wanted to appreciate human mutability, the possibility to convert or to change, and the shared communal identity of Christians. Uh, On the other hand, they could not resist embracing what you describe as the opportunistic fiction of race thinking that could personally enrich them and license the wider nation of, of England to pillage and steal from racialized people. How do you see that tension emerging in the period? Uh, it's practically embodied in Spencer. <laughs> um, the, it, it, it emerges, I mean, Christian doctrine insists that conversion is possible. And um, as I said, you know, Lindsay Kaplan, Jerry Hang, uh, medievalists and people who work um, on literature of the medieval and late medieval periods um, have noted this, um, this fact of black melancholy as marking religious others. But the difference lies in conversion. Um, that and 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 Hang and Whitaker and a number of other scholars have noticed how um, the subject of conversion whitens at the time of conversion. So whiteness as a characteristic of um, white Christianity precedes the early modern period. Um, Whiteness as the index of Christianity precedes the early modern period. What happens in the early modern period is that when you're marking fellow Christians, their um, their conversion has to be has to be impossible. It has to be foreclosed by physiological facts. And those physiological facts become an excess of black melancholy that doesn't permit conversion or rather makes them permanently obdurate. And so, um, you know, you have the inheritance of, you know, a long-standing idea of wrong religion being rendered in terms of color, um, staining the nature of bad Christians or those who are outside of the Christian faith, um, and the white racial body as the guarantor of normalcy, of moral value, of European Christian identity. 
all of that is is not of the period. It's the calcifying of it, the insistence that blackness intrudes in the bodies of colonial subjects to such an extent that those subjects cannot become Christian. Now, with the Irish, what what happens, and, and this is what I try to show in chapter five, what happens over time is the exception that the introduction of Christian blood or English, um, the intrusion of the English upon the bodies of the Irish, can somehow make them Christian. Um, it's that's really not conversion, right? Um, but it it does allow for um, Irish progeny that could be Christian, um, and this fantasy never opens up for. Africans. And so this, um, this, this calcifying happens over time, I guess, is the short story of the long story that I'm telling. But it also, um, it, it flies in the face of everything Christianity is supposed to believe. And in Spencer, in The Fairy Queen, what you notice is not just the humoral condition of those who are marked by error um, and the blackness of those who are marked by religious error, um, but so frequently the um, descent from females, um, error herself, sort of uh, spontaneously produces children who are themselves obdurate and erroneous in their ways, um, you know, streams out black blood. Um, these kinds of, and, and you'll see um, Red Cross when he's reformed in the House of Holiness, that reform takes the, the that reform takes the form, haha, of a humoral um, reformation. It's not mere, it, it is not conversion. It is a humoral um, purging that happens in that house that then allows him to come to charity and to come to Christian belief again. So while Spencer uh, imagines a, um, a Christian corpus he also imagines that that corpus can only be maintained in health if certain members are cut off. And that's how he licenses not only his exceptions, but his incredible violence against the, the Irish. This also reminds me of your reading of Othello, uh, which maybe we can discuss uh, you read that play as staging a collision between different value systems, you know, one in which Othello's um, inherited lineage and the value that that affords him against um, his uh, kind of inherited corporate difference, as well as um, his paganism. Can you talk a little bit more about your reading of that play? Yeah, Um I have to say, I'm, I'm certainly not the only one who's noticed this. Um, Embryon Dadaboy has talked about um, 
Othello as um, a figure that cannot be reformed, Urvishi Chakravarti, um, Jane Degenert. Um, there are a number of critics who've um, seen the link um, to conversion and embodiment um, in Othello and seen ultimately his inability to convert as a signal difference of that character in, in Shakespeare. Um, I, where I develop it is in the descent of Othello's progeny in understanding um, that it's not that Brabantio's notion of Othello as pagan, even in the face of, I mean, in, in the face of his conversion, uh, I mean, Iago is a suspect character, but he nonetheless asserts um, that Othello has been baptized. Um, and so there's, there's little reason to disbelieve that, I think. But for Brabantio, um, you know, if, if such, if the marriage has passage free, bond slaves and pagans shall our statesmen be. And, and so he, this is a revision of older notions of heredity because Othello is also noble. Um, he, you know, he is both noble and a practicing Christian. He says he fetches his life and being from men of royal siege. And we're told he's been baptized. In spite of this, Othello himself, just by his nature in, Ob in Brabantio's characterization, is a natural pagan and slave. And not only that is sure to produce bond slaves and pagans. And neither of these things fits within the ideology of hereditary blood um, or um, Christianity. Um, so Brabantio's image is one of a state fallen to pagan influence. Um, but the, the two crucial assumptions in his fantasy is that Othello res remains pagan in spite of all evidence that he's a practicing Christian and that he will produce pagan offspring. Um, and so he's not only inured to the effects of baptism, all of his progeny are as well. And what I argue is that that's a not only a unique historical moment, but that's also um, unique in Shakespeare. And, and I think not simply Brabantio's perspective, I think it's the perspective of the play. I think on, on a very real level, Othello is characterized as outside of Christian communion, or he would have had faith, literally, in Desdemona and in Desdemona and Cassio, um, that he's he is naturally an unbeliever who cannot participate 
in the love that's offered by his friend and wife. And I think these these ideas do underwrite the play and, in fact, are part of um, the colonial mindset of Shakespeare's time. In, in other words, he does more than record these colonial notions in his play. He helps to produce them. And at one point you said what, that I, I deal in literature. Part of why I do that throughout the book, um, deal in fiction, is because race obviously is itself a fiction. But one of its most persuasive vehicles is literature and culture. Um, And when it's conveyed through Shakespeare, I mean, I think we no longer can see artists and particularly writers of this period as not producing the colonial mind that occupies it. I'm interested in the evolution of the project. You discuss Elizabeth Carey's Tragedy of Miriam and Dunn's Holy Sonnets which are not usually read through the lens of critical race studies. In general, analyses of race thinking in the period focuses on drama, notwithstanding the great and important work of Kim Hall, Dennis Britton, and, and many others. Um, but, but this book um, especially focuses on lyric poetry and other forms uniquely. How did you decide on this archive? Were there texts you considered taking up that didn't end up in the final book? These arguments find you as much as you find them, you know. Um, I'm I'm not the first one at all to look at at Carrie's Mariam in terms of race, as you point out. Kim Hall, uh, Margie Ferguson, uh, Dimna Callahan. I think where I depart from those previous analyses is in looking at Carrie's Mariam in terms of um, heredity and and the heredity of, um, you know, sort of noticing how um, blood defines markers of nobility, but also markers of morality and defines the license of moral and political leaders. So Herod is darkened. Miriam gets whiter and whiter as the play goes on. And part of that is underwriting a real struggle for power between Miriam and Herod and a, um, a genuine struggle for, for power um, that's outlined in Josephus uh, between those two families, Um, you know, that this is a political struggle. Um, But what's notable in Merriam is how these, these differences are rendered in color and ascribed to moral differences. And so the, the first three chapters of the book I mean, in, the whole book is looking at discourse, right? But but trying to understand, particularly if I'm trying to understand how these ideas get so current that they finally uh, find their way into legal codes. 
one of the ways of sort of thinking about that is how discourse is circulating, but also imagining that discourse is available, but it's not always being pressed into the service of race. So you have a discourse in this period, both theological and medical, that can be politically exploited, particularly when a threat from um, a, a, a particular colonial subject is most acutely felt. But it isn't always exploited. And so I start, for that reason, the first three chapters... Um, start with works that are authored by Catholic converts uh, in England proper, because those authors are actually less likely to deploy the terms of this discourse in the service of a racial episteme. And for this reason, you can, I hope, first view the discourse that is available and then how it gets appropriated, how it gets picked up, how it gets, um, uh, how it is put into the service of race at particular times when political and economic agendas collide with it. So the first three chapters try to do exactly that. They, the, the first half looks at a work authored by a Catholic convert, and the second half looks at a work that exploits that discourse and, and then tries to think about, okay, with Dunn, um, what is the traffic between body and soul? Um, and how does this traffic... Um, permit the corruption of both. And then chapter two looks at Ben Johnson and the mask of blackness, which he wrote when he had converted to Catholicism um, for a queen who was a reputed Catholic convert. Um, and, and tries to exfoliate how the melancholy soul shows its colors in the skin. And then chapter three tries to look at how um, bodily disorder and a degenerate soul can be passed off onto offspring. Um, but in both, you know, in all three cases, the, the first text isn't doing that work, but it shows how available that discourse is. And then the second text shows how it gets exploited. Uh, two things uh, I'd like to say. One, one is that I think that really foregrounds um, one of the, the things that I appreciated in this book, which is that um, you're always throwing into relief the material incentives um, that drive the race uh, formation. And the other thing is the structure of the chapters, which um, I, I came to think of as uh, oscillative or metronomic in exactly the terms you're describing. There are these conceptual swings. Um, for instance, the first chapter shifts from Holy Dunn's, uh, sorry, John Dunn's Holy Sonnets to a Christopher Brooke poem on an indigenous revolt in North America. Dunn sets out a set of 
um, racial ideas, and Brooks enlists them in a dangerous political project. Um, how did you devise that narrative strategy for your chapters? So, like I said, part of this was sort of thinking through, um, you know, discourse that's available and then um, how and why. What are the terms under which it becomes exploited? What are the terms under which it changes? Um so Dunn and Brooke are lifelong friends. I mean, there's there's little question that they would have talked about um, ideas of the, the ideas that are available in Dunn's holy sonnets, um, the traffic between body and soul, the potential for a, a, a damaged soul or or um, the potential for the soul to corrupt the body and the body to corrupt the soul. I am Dunn's anxiety over being a convert. Um, just his sonnets are shot through with the anxiety that he might, um, because a former Catholic might not ascend to, he might not be saved. And, this idea is is worked out again and again, but it's worked out again and again in terms of flesh and blood in the Holy Sonnets, in terms of a physiological fact that he seems unable to escape. And one of the things I, I try to map in that chapter is, why would he believe something that crazy, right? Um, but, but it's a crazy that occupies the period. Um, and I trace it back to an early argument um, of Pietro Papanazzi that I think really does transform the thinking of the period. Um, and it certainly transforms the natural history. Um, and um, it, 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 it informs later notions of how the soul interacts with the body in really crucial texts like Philip Melanchthon's De Anima, um, texts that get referred to again and again as a resource for both theological and medical knowledge. Um, so this, you know, I sort of use Dunn to work out the particular anxieties of a period that could imagine the soul offers corruption to the body and vice versa. Um, I, I work those out or, or try to work them out in terms of the salvific imagination of Dunn. But these ideas you can see in his letters to Henry Goodyear are, are ideas he discusses with friends and Christopher Brooke living across the street from him would have been unlikely to have not had those discussions with him as well. Um, so when Brooke writes um, his poem on the occasion of the attack, um, the poem is called uh, a poem on the late massacre in Virginia. What it is actually is the Powhatan tribes attacking Jamestown because uh, there was an expectation that they would leave and um, the indigenous 
people became cognizant of the fact that they were going nowhere. Um, so they, they, you know, they went to wipe them out and, and succeeded. But of course this only brought, um, in 1622, this only brought more boats to, to Virginia. Um, but what's interesting about Brooke's poem, which, um, Casey Evans, I think rightly qualifies as probably the most racist text of the period is his assertion of not just the inhumanity of the indigenous people, um, but the extent to which this is humoral and the extent to which their bodies are just sort of hydraulic machines. Um, You know, he, one line is consider, or two lines, consider who these people are. I cannot call them men. No character of God in them. Souls drowned in flesh and blood. And and that, I mean, honestly, that set me on to this whole project. When you're trying to imagine what that could possibly mean, a soul drowned in flesh and blood. Um in many ways, that that sort of launched me into the project. Um, in, in your chapter on Ben Johnson's Mask of Blackness, you bring the context of religious conversion to bear on Johnson's race thinking, and in protect, particular, the rumor that Queen Anne was a covert Catholic. You also track the determinative role of uh, melancholy, on one's spiritual and intellectual life in that play. Can you talk a little bit more about um, Johnson's Mask of Blackness and how it figures into your argument? One of the things, Johnson has to be careful, obviously, um, because the Mask of Blackness, and and Molly Murray uh, proposed this years ago, that the Mask of Blackness is in some ways a a pageant of obedience, on the part of Anne um, for the benefit of her husband. Um, She's quite clearly a convert by this time. She's a rumored convert. Um, I mean, but the rumors are pretty, a pretty sure thing by this time. Um, And this is a political problem throughout James's uh, reign. And so the Mask of Blackness performs her promise to be reformed by her husband's superior moral, intellectual, and and religious instruction, right? Um, And what I propose is that, that that the mask of blackness shows the extent to which um, black melancholy is an index of wrong religion. But the humoral terms that Johnson uses in the mask of blackness is an index of the currency of the idea that, that black melancholy um, resides in those who are maddened to the point of atheism. The difference in Mask of Blackness is that the Ethiopian um, 
nymphs are able to convert because they seek the faith and because they allow themselves to be um, reformed, literally reformed, in the superior uh, son of England. And of course, James, this, this becomes James, you know, he may not be a celestial light, but he is God's light on earth to which they become subject by consent. Um, and this is part of Anne's promise, part of Anne's performance. She may have black melancholy. She may have wrong religion. She will allow herself to be reformed by her husband. But the reform is, I argue, humoral. And while the um, reformation of the um, Ethiopian princesses is withheld by the end of the play, it's promised. And so, you know, we not only have the um, power of James's light, sciential, uh, not celestial, um, his ability to purify um, the body to the point where it's, it's in condition for grace. Um, but you know, we have, um, we have the promise of, but not the delivery of reformation. And of course that makes total sense in terms of Anne's particular condition. So, you know, I, I'm, I say that Johnson allows for conversion. Um, and that, that, that is different from what you see in, um, Pamphylia to Amphilanthus in, in Roth's Pamphylia to Amphilanthus, which really does um, describe um, religion in, in humoral terms um, and racializes its, its others. To some extent, it, I think Roth envies the outside place, and that's part of what I argue. But I use um, Patricia or uh, Sharon Patricia Holland's um, "The Erotics of Racism" to think through um, notions of home, of family, of cultural um, situatedness as colored and racialized. And I think, um, I think Roth really does characterize the body in this, in these terms that the situation of the body, either inside or outside particular cultural and moral frameworks is colored. I'd like to take a step back and, and just talk about, um, writing practices. Um, are you a part of a, um, a writing group? Um, how do you workshop your writing? Um, do you have standard tactics like, I know, reading out loud is something people do? Or um, are there writers you um, try to emulate or um, academic writers you admire? <laughs> wow. Okay, that's an easy question. Um, uh Okay, writing group. Yes, 
um, Mira Kafantaris and Dorothy Kim and I um, participated in a writing group for over a year. Um, and and I, I, I do that with a lot of my friends at different times with different groups. What's interesting to me is that I write articles in those contexts. I mean, they're hugely important to have support like that, to have collaboration like that, to have, you know, the exchange of ideas. Um, you know, there's so much in my work that comes from other people um, and the conversations that I'm able to have with them. But um, I can't write a book in the presence of others. I've, I've got to have absolute quiet and absolute um, lack of distraction. And I'm not even sure why that is. It's something to do with the size, something to do with how the moving parts fit together and lock. Um, it has something to do with um, the way you find an argument in a book. I, I, I never end up with the argument I think I'm going to end up with. And that has to do with each time you enter into a text and you work with it, it produces the argument as much as you do. You start following it as much as, as um, anything else. And so I think that, um, I think that the larger projects, I just, I, there's a kind of architecture I need to get as I'm working and, and I can't have the benefit of collaboration at those moments. Right. But where I get the collaboration is, I mean, my work would never happen if it weren't for people like Urvashi Chakravarti, Dennis Britton, um, people, so many generous colleagues who read my work and tell me where I've, I've gotten off on the wrong foot and give me feedback. Um, you know, these are long standing collaborative relationships that have just completely shaped who I am as a scholar. Um, you know, I, I think we, we miss a lot how collaborative our work is I mean, even in the absence of actual people with us, we're always collaborating with the ideas of others. Um, somehow, this this weird notion of the rarefied scholar, I how we ever got there. I'm glad we're we're moving away from it, but it was always just a a bad idea um, and and completely fi- fictitious, right? Our work is always a matter of collaboration, of of exchange, of arguing, of of taking ideas from people and investing your work with with their insights. Um, so, so that's just you know that that gets activated in real time with real people as you're writing book chapters and spreading them around, which is why your acknowledgments end up being a mile long, right? Um, but that's that's how I work. I, I write something and I send it off to a few people who, who give me feedback and I write it. And yes, I impose a lot on others. <laughs> 
that's how I do it. Um, as far as as writers I model or emulate, I'm not sure I can model, but I, I certainly aspire um, to, I mean, there are so many. Um, Kim Hall comes up all the time, but she comes up all the time because she's she, she set the model so long ago, you know, 25 years ago, she really she really put the model in place. Um, and the pursuit of that model has been a switchback course at best in, to my mind. Um, but you know, there's, there's, God, I, I can't even name the number of people. I mean, I've named some of them in this conversation. Um, I, I think the people I haven't named yet, uh, Gitanjali Shahani, um, Jennifer Park, uh, you know, uh, Patricia Kimmy, but, but there, there are just so, Noemi and Jai. I mean, there are so many uh, productive models out there. And, but I think what, what I love about our work is how, when you start trafficking in ideas, just how excited you get by the ideas themselves, you know, how much that just gets you, um, interested in things. I mean, I, that's how I work. I, I get interested in something. And then usually I do a collection on that thing. Cause then I can read what everyone else thinks about it. And then I get, you know, that takes me further. Um, and, and I think that's how I think, I think through other people. And I, th- I think that comes through in the book, the intellectual curiosity, the enthusiasm, the, um, collaborative, um, spirit, um, I, uh, I wanted to revisit something you said, which was, um, sometimes you're surprised by the reading you end up making about a text. Um, is there an example in this book? Um, you're all over it. Um, I mean, I, I never end up with the argument I think I'm going to have. Um, and I, I honestly have to give credit to Ayanna Thompson for a lot of redirection. Um, she's, uh, She's a wonderful friend, a wonderful collaborator, but part of what makes her wonderful is when you're being stupid, she doesn't tell you. Um, And I can't tell you how grateful um, I am for that, that talent, right? For somebody sort of gently moving you away from a bad idea without making you feel foolish for thinking it, or a bad question without telling you it's a bad it's not a bad question. That's the point. It's always a good question. It just might be the wrong idea. Um, and I, I think I had a lot of bad ideas and stupid questions at the start of this book, but I, I, that's part of the process as far as I can tell is getting it wrong over and over until you get it right. Um, and you just hope you have good collaborators who will, um, gently steer you away. And I think a lot of my friends have done that for me um, over the years in in ways that have just been so helpful. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful way to frame it, I think. Um, After finishing this book, what advice would you give a scholar that is setting out to engage issues of race in the pre-modern archive? What future directions do you think are most promising? And uh, perhaps reflecting on teaching, 
Um, I assume you've taught uh, courses based in this material in this project. What would have you learned about framing it or designing uh, a syllabus? Future directions. If if I were to imagine a future direction, I think it would be that that race is always considered in everyone's research all the time. Um, so that critical race studies doesn't is not. It will always be a discipline unto itself, but it it is it it will in if I were aspiring it will never not be a consideration in people's research. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, where no writer should be, should not be, no writer of this time should not be implicated in the colonial mind that is part of it, right? That every writer contributes to the production the politics, the arrogance, the violence, the um, economic, the assumption of economic privilege um, of the period, the whiteness that gets produced. It's not hatched in a pod. It's, it's, it's in every work. Um, and I think that's how I teach it. Um, you know, that, the, and that, that is the way to teach it, to, to think through with students, um, race is a fiction, race is a potent fiction, but one that occupies texts in this period all the time. Um, and, and one that, and that we've been talking about this throughout, one that's that's really um, manufactured. Um, you know, race is a fiction created to naturalize social arrangements of power that are already in the making or already in place. But it 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 takes advantage of discourses already available, and you can see why. I mean, if you're going to persuade people of something, you you want them you want to make use of what they're already persuaded by, right? If they're already persuaded, for example, that body and soul are mutually um, informing and corrupting, you can use that to argue that the soul or, or the body's condition, I mean, you know, chicken and egg, but to argue that the soul's condition is permanently obdurate and evident in a reading of the body, right? That's one way, but, but you, you want to persuade them of the second thing, not the first, right? You want them to already be convinced of the first, right? And so race, and, and Jonathan Burton points this out, race just... It's it scavenges. It's this crow that picks up shiny things that that work for um, the the sewing together of a discourse out of materials that are already there. Um, and so when I'm teaching, um, one of the things I sort of work with is talking them through race as a term and as a, a concept as a fiction that changes under the pressures of economic and political agendas. So it will be different at different historical moments. 
And what is it making use of at this moment? You know, um, what discourses is it pressing into service here? And for what purpose? Um, so I've got, um, I've got a class. We have these things called I courses, which are these massive classes of 75 um, freshmen who are supposed to be exposed to intellectual ideas in the course. Um, and I've got one called Race and the Cultural Politics of Blood, a Historical Perspective. And it sort of walks them through different historical moments of fictions, um, rhetoric, politicians, protesters, pundits, um, and how these the, the, the notions of race change at different times in the service of different ideas. Um, and then, you know, juxtaposing those writers. So, you know, Douglas is juxtaposed against Melville. Um, du Bois is juxtaposed against um, later, dis, you know, later rhetoric of Wallace or Goldwater. Um, they end with, with arguing the case for reparations um, through Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, Atlantic article. But it, it, it just, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that when I teach, or going back to your idea of aspiration, I want critical race theory to be part of research all the time. And I want it to be part of the classroom experience all the time. Because I think for too long, we've tried to talk about these texts as aesthetic instead of political. We've tried to imagine texts as ever not political. Um, and I think we, we, we not only do a disservice to our students, but to some extent, well, two things. To some extent, we make the class less interesting for them. But I think we also, if we don't admit the politics, the racism, the agenda in these works, we're not fooling them. We're only then denying what they themselves see in the texts. That's uh, such an important and urgent um, invitation for all of us, I think, as teachers and scholars. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, Kim. Thank you for having me. I always love talking to you, uh, but this is a, this is a wonderful podcast, and I'm I'm honored to be part of it. Yes, I, we've only just begun to explore some of the fresh, uh, close readings in Bad Humor, and uh, I really encourage um, all listeners to to go out and uh, engage with it themselves. Uh, thanks. <laughs>